Okay, so here I go. I am doing my first podcast interview with John Michael Haig of South Africa. And I'm driving there because he's my neighbor. Not literally my neighbor, but I live in such a small town that I feel like everybody is my neighbor. I'm in Rayton, South Africa. 17th of October, I wanted to interview John about six weeks ago, but I got waylaid by Hurricane Harvey when I was coming back from Peru, coming through Houston to see my parents. So I was in contact with John and kept needing to delay the interview. I'm almost there. See how small this town is? And he lives, I live on Play Street and he lives on Park Street. Opposite sides of each other. I'm not sure where to park here. Okay, here we go. Wish me luck. Welcome to the first episode of My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. What brought you to the small town of Grayton? A friend of mine moved here and I helped him um, choose this place. Uh, He had about four or five places he was interested in. And he says, well, come on, we'll do a day trip and we'll visit all of them. And he'd appreciate my advice for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, And see what uh, I like and and Grayton more than ten times better than any of the other places. There was Rebecca Castile, there was Philadelphia, there was oh I can't remember the other places, but Grayton stood out. And when so was this? This was the place was bought in early nineteen eighty three. And what what was Grayton like in 1983? Very different. It was a little, little... There was no English spoken in the village at all. It was a little Afrikaans dorpy. Okay. Uh, and it was wonderful. There was one shop, which... No, sorry, two shops. There was Zippies, which was like the supermarket thing. And funny enough, the, the guy... Same, that, the same Zippies. Same Zippies, okay. but, but it was where Searles is now. Okay, and it was run by a guy I was at school with, or he was the owner of one of my school friends, which was such a coincidence. And the only other shop was Osmond's. Ah. And Osmond's was a one-room shop. It was one of those shops where you walked in and you had to point at what you wanted behind on the shelves behind the counter and it would be put in front of you. It wasn't to help yourself. You it was, I want a tin of those beans, and I want a packet of that flour. Wow. And, and he'd put it and then ring it all up, but not on a till. He, he had a notepad. That was early 80s, 83, 84. And, and electricity? There was no electricity here. Um, everything was gas lamps. Uh, gas stove, the fridge was gas, 
the geezers still are gas. Most Slovis is still gas. Um, but about 10 years after he lived here, so it would have been in the early 90s, um, he had electricity into the cottages. So then how old is the house that we're in right this now? Is, this was built in 1856. Okay, and it, it was originally three separate plots. There were four families living here. Okay. This, this was obviously knocked out at some stage. This whole room here was a family lived in this room. That was their kitchen. My bedroom was a, a separate cottage. And now, of course, it's, they've added a, what do you call a bathroom between. So I can walk from the one cottage into the next cottage and through the bathroom into my bedroom. Um, but the, the, my original deed papers, you can see up on the wall there, contain terms and conditions of the sale of plots in the proposed village of Grayton. That, that's how old this place is. Wow. Yeah, and I've got the originals with a wax seal and all. That's just a photograph of them, yeah, for display purposes. But I actually have the original deed papers. Okay, and so, you, so you've been living in Grayton for how long? I've been visiting since my friend bought the place. I'd come out for weekends, holidays, bring my girlfriends out, what, whatever. Mm. Um, but my friend died in 2010. Okay. And I inherited it. Wow. I, always, I always thought um, he'd outlive me because we had this mutual agreement. If I died first, he'd get half my stuff and vice versa. And uh, his mother lived to 104. She's buried outside my bedroom window. In fact, so is he. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, wow. and, well, they're ashes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they yeah. remains uh, yeah. uh, underneath my bedroom window. Um, his mother lived to 104. And, and he was an absolute fanatic about uh, eating the right stuff. And, you know, I think he was about 80 when he died. But he just died all of a sudden. Just he came into Cape Town just for his monthly visit at two days, and we were having sundowners on on the balcony in Bantry Bay, and he started coughing, and he says, "Oh, there's blood," and I said, "What do you bite your tongue or what?" He says, "No, I don't think so. My chest is sore." Twelve days later, he was dead. So. Anyway, so I got great. <laughs> and how did you two connect in the first place? Look, you're going to laugh looking at me now, but I used to be a model. Ah, right. Okay. Yes. And he did photography. He was an architect by trade or by for a living, uh, but he was a, a very good photographer. And the weekend Argus commissioned him to do a swimsuit thing for their weekend uh, supplement. And I was chosen from the modeling agency um, yeah, to pose for the, these swimsuits and funny stuff. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll go more into that. Okay. And, and we just stayed friends, which is quite unbelievable because he was, he was an absolute recluse. He was the unfriendliest person you ever, ever knew. Nobody liked him. Which, uh, but for some reason or other, maybe it's because I'm deaf, maybe it's because I'm thick-skinned. Um, I put up with him 
but there were, there were very few and far between people that could put up with these nonsense, you know. What are your impressions of Grayton now? Look, there, there's a couple of issues to, to, to that sort of question. The one thing is, it's nice that there is now a choice of, uh, choice of restaurants and, and whatever. Um, we've got some very nice ones here. And um, there, there was absolutely no social life at all uh, in, in the old days. I, I think the Oak and Vine was possibly the first coffee shop as such. And it wasn't called the Oak and Vine. I can't recall its name. Um, and now the, look at the choice we've got. You know, it's fabulous. What on the negative side it's become very suburban. A lot of holiday houses. I mean, the house that they've bought, uh, built on the bottom of my property here yes, I at do. the bottom I just drove by lo it. looks like a hotel. Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. But that seems to be the trend now here. Well, it is because a lot, a lot of, of rich new... people are, mm. are moving in. Now, nowadays, as I say, it, it's a case of uh, suburbia comes to Grayton. How do you think that's going to affect the overall vibe of the village uh, or do you you can close your eyes as you drive past <laughs> which i sometimes do but look on the on the plus side it, it is pushing up the price of property so yeah. um you know and i'm sitting here on seven and a half thousand square meters you know roughly wow. um so in a way it's a good thing but I, I don't really sword. need the money. I mean, I'm not going to subdivide and sell off and have a yeah. another hotel on my doorstep. So, right. uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. But, uh, yeah, so that that is on the negative side, I say, is all the the building up and, and that. But on the, on the positive side, you know, especially over weekends, there's a good vibe. The restaurants are doing, you know, doing fairly good business. And... Uh, yeah, it's good for the village, you yeah. know. I mean, look, the, the only place that uh, people from Hevelkruen and and uh, Hanal are employed is by the tourist. When I say tourist, I mean, you know, the restaurants, the shops, the whatever. There, there, there is no industry apart from farming. Yeah, it's either so, farming so or you get service. The yeah. You're either a farm laborer mm. or... You, in the service you work. Industry. You work for hotels or restaurants mm. or B and Bs, and and that's it. You know, yeah. and that goes for most of the local <laughs> locals as well. All, you know, I mean, like take take our coffee club for instance, Breakfast Club International. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sixty seven, and I'm about ten years younger than anybody else in in the circle. You know, so uh, it's a bit of a retirement uh, retirement a, yeah. home as well. You You're know. a rookie, and I'm like an infant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This episode of My Way has been brought to you by dung beetles. Whenever life gives you shit, think of the dung beetle. These amazing arthropods have been crafting functional, recycled, and edible art for the last 65 million years. Shit balls, shit burrows, shit chick magnets, shit nests, shit sandwiches, you name it and the dung beetles have made it. 
Not only are they artistically resourceful, but they are strong. The average dung beetle can roll a shitball 50 times their weight. That would be like President Obama rolling a shitball made up of at least 37 Donald Trumps. I'll give you a moment to think about that. When Trump referred to shithole African countries, the standing ovation from the 2,000 species of dung beetle could be heard from the pyramids of Egypt to the cradle of humankind in South Africa. Dung beetles, taking shit from everyone. I was born in England uh, in my, uh, what do you call it, my, from, from six until ten. I lived in India, in the northern Punjab, um, permanently, uh, and then went back to went back to England, stayed a couple of years. And my my father was very much a warm climate type of chap, so uh, we came out here. So, why were you in India from ages six to? My 10? father was in textiles. Yeah, you know, we were we were from Yorkshire. And uh, Yorkshire had a huge wool industry. So did northern India, uh, say northern Punjab. And and the little village we lived in was called Dariwal. And it was actually owned by a Scottish woolen company. And my father was basically an industrial chemist. So um, he was in charge of the dye house in this wool factory. So, yeah, and it was a great place to grow up. I think the, the one reason um, we did leave there is because, look, I, I was almost 10 years old and I hadn't ever been to school, which might explain a thing or two. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. so, um, and then, then in England, we, we didn't, you know, when we went back to England, we didn't settle down anywhere. And I think in in the space of a year and a half or two years, however long it was, I'm a bit vague, you know. I I must have gone to about four or five different schools. Did so, you did you like school or was it just kind of? Do you think? No, that... no, it got in the way of surfing actually. All right, okay. Especially in in those days, it wasn't bad, and and I was even though I had no formal training as as a youngster, I I could read perfectly. I could read better than people that were at school, as I say. But but uh, eventually school became a bit of a drag because he had to be there instead of the beach, you know. And I think I walked out of school one day when I was about 17. No, it was, I was about 16 years old. And I thought, fuck this, I'm going surfing. <laughs> I took my surfboard and I literally hitchhiked up to, up to Durban and came came back. Quite, quite a long time later, my parents were absolutely distraught. Because, I mean, it was before, obviously before anything, there was no computers and they, they didn't know how to get hold of me and none of my friends knew where I was. So how long were you gone? Oh, a few months, I think. <gasps> a yeah, few months? Yeah, I just lived with the surfing guys up in Durban. And they reciprocated when eventually my parents forgave me like the prodigal son. Um they used to come down and stay, <laughs> stay with my parents and I. Yeah, we had quite a big place in Fresno. Did, and did they think, of, I mean, if I were your your parents, I would have thought, well, he's dead. Yeah, well, they, they 
pretended not to be, but I think they were fairly worried, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that that is where where I got into the you know I had to sort of make a living, and that that's where I got into the modelling. I used to do those those photo books, Captain Devil and Sister Louise. So uh, those were all all photographed on a Sunday for for all the extras and that sort of thing. And so I was earning a fairly good living working one day every three weeks, which, which was pretty good. Is this when you were 17, 18? <laughs> 17, 18, yeah. Plus I was doing other other modeling jobs, you know, just, just for the hell of it. But, uh, you know, I was surviving. Yeah. Uh, but eventually Republican publications that published all these picture books, you know, the ones with the talk bubbles, decided to relocate back to Durban. That's where they originated. And they wanted me to go back there because I did a whole series called Doctor's Diary. And, uh, well, you know, uh, not unexpectedly, I was always the villain. (laughs) Always, always, you know. The hero is always some suave-looking, you know. And and Haig Haig was... Always, always the villain, and they actually said, "Look, yeah, you know, the the villain is is quite popular. Why don't you come up to Durban and, you know, continue with us? We'll, we'll you know." Yeah, I would like yeah. Doctor Haig. That sounds like a villain's <laughs> But name. all my all my friends were here in Cape Town, and and I said, "No, I couldn't. I couldn't live there." So what I decided was to actually get a job and start working for a living. And I became a, a lithography apprentice. So I am actually a qualified lithographer. Yeah, and, and that led me into, first of all, publishing. Um, I used to be the production manager for the Reader's Digest magazine. And then I went from there into advertising. I was production manager for Young and Rubicam, and then I was the, what would you call it, uh, straight publishers, uh, sort of like headhunted me, and I was in charge of their production department, and uh, yeah, that's how it went, and eventually, you know, I'm a photographer, it's something I'd been doing since I was 14, and I de- uh, decided to my photography business was getting bigger and bigger. I had a full on my own studio. I, I I did well as a professional photographer, but I kept on being lured away by companies needing people that knew what I knew. And at one stage, an ex-apprentice of mine phoned me and he says, John, do I know anybody that wants to run a small little printing company? I said, no, I don't know anybody. He said, well, come and have a look. So, yeah, it was a four-machine little printing outfit, middle of Salt River, opposite the morgue, the dead center of Salt River. (laughs) Yeah, right opposite the morgue. Uh, They took us on tours every now and again. Horrific. Yeah, so so the owner of this place suddenly pitched up because my ex-apprentice was just the manager of the place and the owner of the whole, it belonged to a clothing manufacturer, came in. He was very persuasive as these clothing fundies can be. And he convinced me to please run the place 
um, just for three months until they get somebody permanent. Thirteen and a half years later, <laughs> I escaped again. <laughs> but the nice thing was I was the boss. I did everything. I called on the customers. Their customers became my customers on the photographic side and vice versa. So it worked, you know. It absolutely worked. And I'd, I'd pop in at odd hours just to make sure everything was going smoothly because it wasn't far away from where I lived. My house was in District 6 and this was in Salt River. So, wow. yeah, and I say, but but after 13 and a half years, they eventually decided, uh, you know, the clothing manufacturing business w was shrinking rapidly. And in fact, uh, and I'm quite delighted to be able to say this, most of those clothing manufacturing warehouses now are gin distilleries. Uh, I'll drink to that. They <laughs> all are. Hopkins Street, there's about four gin distilleries in Hopkins Street. And the one used to be A. Fraser and Company. The one place used to be Marlborough. The other place used to be Manhattan Manufacturers. Rex True Form, there was all in that area, and they are now all gin distilleries. And there's one... Isn't Wood, that wonderful? Yeah, Woodstock, which is Woodstock Gin Distillery, which is right next to the Biscuit Mill. Yeah, well, that is thing. exactly the same area, because uh, I don't know if you know where the morgue is in Salt River. No. It, it's go, if you go up Salt River Road, yeah. at the top on the right-hand side. Is this, So it's still a and, morgue? Oh, absolutely. Or is it like the morgue gin distillery? <laughs> I bet they're doing it on the side. I, I, I read yesterday they have such a backlog of things that they're trying to shuffle through the place. And I think it's because they're distilling gin in the back room there. You know? <laughs> Never know. How did you then get into porn? <laughs> oh boy! No, it, it, look, it, it was an amusing way of making a living. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today, kids. But please join us next week for part two of my interview with John Michael Haig, as we discuss his illustrious career in South Africa's niche porn industry, as well as surfboards, his mother, and the loss of a totally underrated anatomical feature. Join us next time. Once again, this is my way. I'm Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>